Well, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. I would love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Uh, excited as well, continue our series in the Gospel of John together. Believe it or not, we are getting close to the end of the book. Some of you are like, are there any other books in the Bible? I'm not sure. We just seem like we're doing this one for a really long time. And we have been in John for a while, uh, but I trust that it's been good for your heart. I know it's been good for mine as we keep looking at God's Word together. But if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, it's, it's important to understand the, a little bit of the context about John's Gospel. Like the other three, uh, John's Gospel, it tells us the story of Jesus' life and ministry. But what we've seen throughout our study is that John's Gospel is really unique when compared with the other three. He ignores all kinds of things the other three focus on, and he gives us a bunch of new details, a bunch of new stories from Jesus' life and ministry. And what we've seen throughout our time together is that the, the reason for all those differences has everything to do with the fact that John's primary audience isn't people who've, ne who've never heard about Jesus, but rather is people who are who are familiar with him, but who only have, who just have like a head level familiarity with Jesus. They, they grew up kind of knowing about him, but their faith in him is not changing them in any real way. And so at the heart of John's gospel is his desire to show people Jesus through maybe a new lens and in, do, in doing so to help to, to cause kind of this insufficient head-level familiarity with Jesus to become a life-transforming, heart-level faith in him. And so that's what John's after. And to that end, what we saw is in the first half of John's gospel, he spends the first half talking about Jesus' public ministry, where he went around teaching and preaching and doing miracles, which John calls signs, because at the heart of all that stuff is this revelation that Jesus has come to reveal that he's not just a, he's not just a wise teacher, he's not a representative from God, that he's God himself come to redeem and renew and save his people and call people to faith in him that produces life in them that begins now and lasts for eternity. But if the first half of John's gospel is about that public ministry side of Jesus's revelation, then the second half is about uh, this period where Jesus kind of zoomed, John zooms into the last few days that Jesus has with his disciples as he invests his remaining time in them, helping to prepare them for what it will look like to follow him and what a life, uh, what a real heart level faith in him, the kind of life that that invariably leads to. And and so the, the first half is, again, all about Jesus' public ministry, calling people to faith in him. And the second half is all about helping people see what it looks like to follow Jesus in a real, authentic kind of way. But there's one more section to John's gospel, and I would argue it's the most important one. See, it's the part that not only proves that everything Jesus said and did in the first half was true, it's the part that gives us the kind of power and motivation we actually need to live and to do all the stuff he calls us to in the second half. This is the part that John goes over about Jesus' death and his resurrection. As we begin this final section today, kind of in the lead up to Easter here, and we this morning take a look at John's account of the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested and denied. What we're going to see happening this morning and in the next couple of weeks as well is that, is that John's going to come back to a number of the themes that he has been weaving throughout his gospel as a whole. And if I'm honest, there's not like a whole lot of new information John gives us in this last section. But what he's doing is he's pulling together all these themes that he's been writing throughout the whole thing and showing us how they all these themes, they find their culmination in Jesus' death and in his resurrection. They all point here. They're all leading here. They all end up here. But what stands out, I think, most vividly in our passage this morning, and I think what John wants to make us make sure that we see, 
is that in the midst of a situation where everything feels out of control, Jesus is anything but. He is not a helpless victim in some sinister plot. He is, no one is forcing Jesus to do anything. Instead, I think what John wants to see and what he wants us to revel in this morning is the willingness with which Jesus heads towards the cross. I can't wait to show it to you this morning. It's been such an encouraging passage for me as I've studied it this week. And I'm just looking forward to sharing it with you. And so with that in mind, let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive in together. Jesus, thanks so much for you and for your word. And we're just grateful that we get to come and study it this morning again. And God, as we come, we, wanna, we just want to acknowledge as we do every week that like without you, without you being the one that empowers our time together, we're just wasting our minutes. But God, we know that you love to meet us in our need for you and in our study of your word. And so we ask that you might help us to see, Jesus, the, the themes in John's gospel that he brings back this morning. Help us to see those things rightly so that we might put our hope and our trust in you. That we might not just have a head-level faith in you, Jesus, but a heart-level one that transforms our lives. And so uh, I don't have any power to make that happen but you do, God. And so I ask, uh, you might use me for that ends, and that you might enable us to, to be changed for that ends. And so for our good and for your glory, we ask it, God. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be in the first section of John chapter 18. It begins this way. When after he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. Across the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And so Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and from the Pharisees, and they were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and he asked them, Who is it you want? And Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off of his ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and the officials stood around a fire there that they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all Jews could come together, and I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. And when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. 
But if I spoke the truth, then why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. And so they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. We saw last week in John chapter 17, Jesus praying for his disciples out loud at the close of their evening together. And having finished praying for them, the passage begins this morning in chapter 18 with Jesus leading the disciples uh, into a garden just outside the city of Jerusalem where they had gone together many times before. And the other gospel writers tell us it was a place known as the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's here in the dark of night that Judas, who we last saw at the end of chapter 13, leaving the group that same night to go and betray Jesus, he he comes back leading a group of Jewish religious officials and armed Roman soldiers who intend on arresting Jesus by whatever means necessary. You get kind of like that Beauty and the Beast pitchfork picture in your mind at the end, right? There's torches and pitchforks and everybody's coming to come get the beast, right? But Jesus, not only knowing that they would be there, but how exactly how they would answer his question, he steps forward and he asks them, who is it you're seeking? Who have you come for? Jesus of Nazareth, they reply. And in verse 5, he simply responds, I am he. And a detachment of Roman soldiers, somewhere between two and 600 people, they fall to the ground. So that brings us to the first theme in John's gospel. We see him reprising in our passage this morning. It's Jesus' divine identity. You see, Jesus' words here in verse 5 are the culmination of seven other times in John's gospel where John has recorded how Jesus said the words, I am, followed by some astounding claim. We saw first him say that he is the bread of life. I am the light of the world, the gate for the sheep, the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. He tells his disciples, I am the true vine. And all of those claims, all of those statements are meant to highlight one thing. That Jesus is God. You see, those three words in English, I am he, they're just two words in the original language. Ego eimi. They would have immediately sent the minds of any person with even a hint of a Jewish background racing back to Exodus chapter 3 and Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush where God commissions Moses as his representative to return to Egypt and liberate God's people from slavery there. And Moses, he asks God, who should I tell them has sent me? God responds to him. He says, tell them I am has sent me. In Hebrew, ego, me." You see, God's name, the I am, it was so revered and so holy that Jews wouldn't even write it down, let alone say it. And yet here is Jesus not only taking that name on his lips, but taking it on himself. See, in calling himself the I am, Jesus was declaring emphatically that he was God. See, the same God who sent Moses to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt had now come in person, in flesh, to rescue his people from the greater enemies to slavery and sin and death. That's the very declaration that John begins the whole gospel with. If you remember back in chapter 1, he said it this way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. 
the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. You see, the most central claim in John's entire gospel, the the building block at the bottom, the foundation on which everything else hinges, is that Jesus is not just a wise prophet or a great teacher. He is not a spiritual guru or some messenger from God. He is, in fact, God himself. It's the foundation on which everything else that John says about Jesus lays the problem is today, I think that so many people, they, we tend to look at Jesus and we think, you know, I don't know if he really is God, but I sure think his teaching has some merit. It seems like he had some good things to say. And with all due respect, I, I just want to respond to that. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And it makes no sense. And here's why, you see, because Jesus's teaching is saturated with his own claims Not to be just a teacher, but to be God himself. And to say that Jesus, that you're not sure if he's God, but you like his teaching, it just reveals you have never read what he had to say in the first place. Because central to everything he said is his own identity as God. C.S. Lewis famously put it this way, to say that Jesus is just a great moral teacher, but not God is the one thing we must not say For a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either he is, either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, and you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher for he has not left that option open to us you see Jesus cannot be one of many on a shelf he's either a liar a lunatic or he's the lord of the universe sometimes people think there's a fourth option though maybe it's just a legend maybe all the stuff that we have written down maybe it's just something people made up Right? Well, let me just ask you this then. Why do you think John names the guy whose ear gets cut off in the passage? Now, he doesn't tell us anything more about this person at all. There's no more details about him. He never comes up ever again in any of the stories. Why is he here? Why name him? None of the other gospel writers name him. Why? Why, why is John here? Why include that detail? If it's just some made-up story, why include that detail? Here's why. Because what every good historian will tell you is what John is doing is putting a footnote in his gospel. He's citing his sources. He's saying, listen, I know the guy's name. I talked with him. He was there. And you can go ask him yourself. And John, you only put those kind of details in there. You only include that stuff if you're citing your sources. You see, Jesus is not a legend. And he's not a liar or a lunatic See, the message at the very heart of John's gospel is that he's the Lord of the universe. That he is the great I am, God himself. And that's why even a glimmer of his glorious divine identity breaking through into the world is enough to send an entire detachment of battle-hardened soldiers to the ground. 
See, that brings us to the second theme of John's book that that we see him highlighting again for us in chapter 18. And it's Jesus' sovereign authority. Throughout John's gospel, we've seen Jesus' authority over all kinds of things. Whether it's the weather or disease, even death itself as he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. He makes food for thousands from a humble boy's lunch. He knows what's on someone's heart and mind before they say it. He knows the future before it happens. And from beginning to end, what John makes clear is that Jesus is not only fully aware of what's going on, he is fully in control of everything that's happening. And we see that authority again in our passage this morning. Not only does the mere utterance of his divine name send battle-hardened soldiers to the ground, but verse 4 tells us that Jesus, knowing everything that's about to happen, steps forward to meet his betrayer. Jesus is not surprised to find Judas and this crowd of officials coming after him. He's not like, oh my goodness, I could not believe you're here. Where did you come from? I had no idea. Jesus knows exactly what was happening. In fact, it was his plan all along. He is not caught in a trap. Everything is happening as he ordained it to. See, and that includes his protection of his disciples. See, the protocol was always, if you're arresting a dangerous insurrectionist like Jesus would have been seen as, you always arrest the followers, right? And you vanish everyone. You disappear them all. That's how you get rid of the problem. But verse 8 He says, Jesus says to them, I told you that I'm he. If you're looking for me, let these men go. And they just do. They just do. They brought a huge, they brought hundreds of soldiers with them. And they're just like, meh, I guess we can just, we can just take the one guy, I guess. It's fine. That'll be enough. Verse nine tells us this. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled I have not lost one that you gave me. You see, here's what John's trying to help you to see. Jesus does not just know the future, he controls it. He does not just know the future, he is the one controlling it. And so what that means is that in verse 12, when when we read that a detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested him, when they bind him and when they bring him to the high priest, what John wants to make sure that you see is that Jesus is going willingly of his own accord. At any moment, he could have simply spoken a word and turned every ounce of opposition in front of him into dust or or called a countless legions of angels to come and do it for him. But he doesn't. And knowing all that's ahead of him in the coming hours, knowing that he's about to be denied by his closest friends and falsely accused and unfairly tried, knowing that's in store for him is whipping and beating and scourging, knowing the crown of thorns and the cross itself lay ahead of him, he chooses to stay. And he not only protects his disciples, but he allows his captors to rise and to arrest him. Nobody is forcing Jesus to do anything that night. He is not a helpless victim in some sinister plot. You need to see this. Nor is he just merely a a willing participant. He is fully aware and fully in control of everything that's happening. As he told his disciples in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to pick it back up again. 
as I studied the passage this week, I was reminded of a book I read last year with my kids, the great C.S. Lewis story, The, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's a scene near the climax of that story where Aslan is the king of Narnia. He's this enormous, powerful, majestic lion. He, he's offered himself as payment for a debt that one of the children in the story owes the white witch. And, and he comes to the stone table, this area, to lay down his life. And, and the witch, she thinks that she's in control of the situation. She thinks that she's finally defeated her enemy, that she's outsmarted him. And yet what Lewis makes abundantly clear in the story is that Aslan is the one who's actually in control of the whole time. Bind him, says the witch. The hags made a dart at him and they shrieked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. Then other evil dwarves and apes, they rushed in to help them and between them they rolled the huge lion over on his back. They tied all four of his paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though they had, though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of all of them. But he made no noise. Even when the enemy, straining and tugging, pulled the cord so tight they cut his flesh. Muzzle him, said the witch. And even now, as they worked about his face, putting on the muzzle, one bite from his jaws could have cost two or three of them their hands, and yet he never moved. The witch stood by Aslan's head, her face working and twitching with passion, but his looked up at the sky, still quiet. Neither angry nor afraid, instead more brave and more beautiful and more patient than ever. See the picture in C.S. Lewis's story of Aslan, the great lion. It's a reflection of the story of Jesus. And what he wants us to see in Aslan's story and what John wants us to see in Jesus' arrest is that they are both characterized by a sovereign power and absolute authority that is willingly bound. for Edmund, for the disciples, and for you and for me. See, that brings us to the last theme in our passage that we see John reprising from his gospel. And it's the atoning love of Jesus. In verse 8, Jesus, he says to the man, I've told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go, right? He, he hands himself over to the captors. And yet Peter, in pure Peter fashion, acts before thinking, instead of realizing that everything Jesus has just spent the entire night telling them not only would happen, is happening, and was supposed to happen the entire time. He pulls out a sword. I don't even know where he got the sword from, right? It's not like he was good with it. He was a terrible fisherman as it was right? It's not like he's some trained soldier. And he just flings the sword about. And you can tell he has absolutely no idea what he's doing because no one tries to slice off someone's ear. That happens when you miss someone's head, right? Peter is just like flailing about, right? He, I'm not even sure he knew what he was trying to accomplish in that moment. I love how one commentator put it. He says it this way, the act of striking the servant's ear was clearly one of desperation, but the tactic was as pointless as Peter's misunderstanding was complete. You see, Jesus responds to Peter's pointlessly courageous act. He says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup this, the Father has given me? You see, Peter completely misses what's going on here. 
Like Susan and, and like Lucy who watch Aslan willingly going to the stone table, utterly astonished and absolutely confused, making no sense to them, Peter does the same. See, because what Peter doesn't get is that Jesus has not come to start a war and to rescue the Israelites physically. He has come to finish a war and to rescue his people spiritually and eternally. And he's come to do it not by crushing his enemies, but instead by dying in their place and by paying the penalty that their sinful rebellion deserves. See, that's what Jesus is talking about when he tells Peter about drinking the cup the Father has given him. See, throughout the Bible, the the cup is a metaphor for death and it symbolizes is God's wrath for sin and his just judgment of it. Psalm 75 verse 8 says it this way, and the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine. He pours it out on all the wicked of the earth, drink it down to its very dregs. In Jeremiah 25, God speaks to Jeremiah and tells him to say this, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations whom I send to you to drink it. You see, people do not like talking about God's wrath unless they have like a really a lot of bad CG graphics flying around behind them on TV, right? But John Stott writes this. He says the Bible talks about God's wrath often. It describes it as his personal, righteous, and constant hostility towards evil. It is his unsettled refusal to compromise with it in any way, and instead his resolve to condemn it. See, the message of the scriptures is that God is both immeasurably good and just. He is not just loving, he is just. And because sin is evil and God is just, all sin must be punished. The sin that's committed by us and the sin that is committed against us, all of it one day will be accounted for. Which is why Jesus tells Peter, don't stop me. Don't try to stop me from drinking this cup. You see, the truth is, is that either you and I will drink the cup of God's just wrath for our sin, or through faith in Jesus, he will have drunk it for. You see, on the cross, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. All of God's just wrath for our sin and our rebellion, for all the ways that we have rejected him as the king and creator of the universe and enthroned ourselves as such, it all falls on Jesus. And in love for us, Jesus pays the penalty that our sin deserves so that like the disciples that night, you and I might go free. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says it this way, that this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. That word atoning sacrifice, it means that, it means that Jesus absorbs all of God's wrath, that he bears it away from us. And so what that means is that if you put your faith in Jesus, not only are you forgiven, but all of God's wrath, all of his just judgment for your sin has been completely absorbed by what Jesus has done. And so God has no wrath left for you. All that is left for you is love. See, Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. He absorbed all of God's just wrath for our sin. He took the cup and drank every last drop of it. My studies this week, I came across a a hymn. A second verse of it goes this way. It says, death and curse were in our cup. O Christ was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark drop. It's empty now for me. That bitter cup 
Love drank it up. There's no more curse for me. You see, the good news of the gospel is not just that God forgives sinners. If he just forgives, he is neither just or good. The good news of the gospel is that a just and good God pays the penalty of our sin himself. He is the one who receives all of his just wrath for our sin. His own son does it. And so instead of smiting us, which he obviously could have, just look at the way he, a single word from his mouth impacts Roman soldiers. He said he goes to the cross and he takes our judgment for us. Jesus gets judgment day early. So that what happens is when you and I stand before the Lord on judgment day, we, you and I, instead of being blown off our feet like these Roman soldiers were, will be able to stand, not because we stand in our own strength or because we stand in our own identity, but because we stand in him. And God's wrath for our sin has been completely absorbed by him. He drank the cup every last drop. See, but that's not all that's in our passage this morning. You see, what makes Jesus' atoning love all the more beautiful is that it is for unfaithful fools like Peter. Like a masterful storyteller, John weaves the story of Jesus' questioning before the high priests in with Peter's denial of Jesus. And while at every point in the story Jesus steps forward, and affirms who he is. And all that he said and done, Peter does the opposite. One commentator puts it this way, Peter's words of denial, I am not, they are the tragic counterpoint to Jesus' own words of affirmation, I am. And yet what you have to see is that like with everything else in the passage, Jesus knew that is exactly what Peter would do. At the end of chapter 13, Peter says, Jesus, I'm going to die for you. There's no way someone else is going to take your life. I'll die for you. Jesus tells him before the rooster crows, before the night's over, you'll have denied me three times already. And knowing everything this unfaithful fool knowing with absolute clarity what Peter would do Jesus still tells him don't try to stop me from taking this cup for you. You see, that is such good news. Because you and I are just like Peter. We are unfaithful fools. And we don't understand what God is doing. And we miss his purposes. And we miss what he is up to. And at the slightest ounce of opposition, we are so easily tempted to turn our backs on him. And yet the good news of the passage this morning is that if Jesus did not turn his back on Peter in this moment, then you can be sure he will not turn his back on you. In the midst of the hour of his greatest need, he knew his friend would walk away. And he still said, don't stop me from taking this cup for you. You see, it's Jesus' atoning love for unfaithful fools like you and like me. That's what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. And celebrating communion, remembering Jesus' body and blood broken and shed for us. It doesn't change your status with God. It doesn't change your standing with Him. 
It doesn't save you. It doesn't make you right with Him. Instead, it's a chance for us to remember and to remind ourselves, the unfaithful fools we are, of all that Jesus has done for us. In the midst of Him knowing how we would turn from Him just as Peter does, He still drinks the cup of God's wrath for you and for me. And so if you put your trust in Jesus, if you said that he is your atoning sacrifice, the one who takes away your sin, who removes it from you, and who absorbs all of God's just wrath for it, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Do it in joy as you celebrate Jesus' life given for yours, his death given for yours, him drinking the cup for you. But if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out what it means to follow him, and if that's something you want to commit to, then I just want you to know how welcome you are here. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals, and he is not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that says, Jesus, you are my atoning sacrifice. The one that I need desperately, and the one whose sacrifice is altogether sufficient for me. And so if you're here today and you've placed your faith in Jesus or you do for the first time, then go back and take communion. Do it as a joyful celebration of all that Jesus has done for you. But as we celebrate communion, as we remember the gospel together in song, wherever you're at this morning, I want to encourage you to talk with God. See, the heart of John's gospel is is his desire that you and I, that all who would read it, might not settle for a mere head-level familiarity with Jesus, but that we would have a heart-level belief in him that is transforming our lives today and every day. And I think one of the primary reasons why John keeps coming back to these themes that he's presented to us over and over and over again throughout his gospel is because in love for us, he wants to graciously ask us the question, do you know about him or do you believe in him? See, some of you are here this morning and the thing that you need to believe is that Jesus is God himself. You need to believe in his divine identity. He is not just a good teacher or a spiritual life coach. He is God himself. And you can either worship him or you can reject him. But the one thing you cannot do is simply admire him. And I get that making a decision about who he is and following him, that that's not just like this instant thing that... It takes time to consider those things and to prayerfully learn through that. But I want to encourage you this morning, do not spend your life sitting on the fence about Jesus. In college, I spent probably 18 months with a friend of mine walking through the the Gospel of John with him. And we saw all of Jesus' claims about himself. And we walked through and saw all that Jesus had to say. And my friend kept asking lots of real, honest, good questions. And what about this? And what about that? And what about those things? And I would graciously try to answer those questions. But at one point, I just had to tell him, listen, none of that stuff matters unless you decide who Jesus is. And either he's king and he's God or he's not And if he's king, then everything else will fall into place. And if he's not, none of it ever will. But you must decide. Because Jesus claims not to be a good teacher, but to be God himself. And so some of you are here, and that's where you need to wrestle this morning. Others of you are here, and and the thing that you need to believe, maybe you know it, but you need to believe it. 
is Jesus' sovereign authority. See, it is so easy for us to look at the situation that Jesus was in and just be like, that seems just like a hot mess of craziness. Like, like there's no way that God's in control in that situation. Like, he's getting betrayed, denied, arrested. Like, like what, what, how could he possibly be in charge of that situation, right? One commentator put it this way, though. He said, just as Christ controlled his own destiny, even when the opposite seemed to be the case, so too he controls our own. For even when all the circumstances seem to point to a little or limited or absent God, he is still on the throne. I just want to encourage you this morning, whatever you are walking through, whatever in your life feels absolutely out of control, if Jesus was not out of control in that moment, he is not out of control in yours. If he was not out of control when he was being betrayed and denied and arrested and put to the cross, he is not out of control in whatever you are facing. And the invitation this morning is that you might trust him. That the reality of his sovereign authority over everything might be good news that empowers you to walk with him into the moments that you are facing. So some of you, you need to wrestle with his divine identity. Others of you, you need to believe in his sovereign authority. But I think lastly for all of us, there is an invitation that we might not just acknowledge, but that we might take into our hearts the good news of his atoning love for us. You see, Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. He completely absorbs all of God's just wrath for our sin. What that means is that God has no wrath left for you. So if you put your faith in Jesus, so often what happens is like we still live like we're on probation with God. Like we got like, hey, here's like some grace that you got. Like don't use it up, right? Like there's a limited quantity here. And if you use it up, like, well, we're going to be back to square one again. And yet that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not that Jesus is a good sacrifice who provides a temporary relief from God's just wrath for your sin. The message of the gospel is that he is the ultimate sacrifice who absorbs every last drop. Of God's just wrath, you and I all deserve. He drinks the cup for you. It's empty. There is no curse left. And so what's in the cup is his love for you. That's all that's left. Let the good news of his atoning love for you, in the midst of your unfaithful foolishness, let it be good news that fills your heart up with gladness and empowers you to live a life of worship unto him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, we, we come to you this morning, just like Peter, as unfaithful fools who miss what you are doing, who flail around in ignorance, and who are so easily tempted to turn our backs on you. And yet in love for us, Jesus, knowing everything we would say and do, you drink the cup for us. The great king and creator of the universe 
comes to take the penalty his creation deserves. And so God, we ask by your grace, might the good news of your sovereign authority, your divine identity, and your atoning love be good news to our hearts this morning. Might this fill us with confidence and joy. And might it empower us, Jesus, to live lives of worship unto you as it did for these men. We pray. Amen.